0: choosing this podcast for the BJSM community. And I'm delighted to be with my good friend, Francis O'Connor, who's a Professor and Department Chair of Military and Emergency Medicine at Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. And that's in Bethesda. And he was a former President of the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. And thanks for getting home to give us your time today, Francis.
1: it's It's a privilege, Karim.
0: You are an expert in heat stroke and also in rhabdomyolysis, and you do a lot of care of athletes and the military folks. Let's talk about the military today, because we can learn a lot from them. What are some special features about taking care of military individuals?
1: Um, well, I think, you know, the military has very comparable problems that we see in uh, in the high school and collegiate athletic communities. In reality, they're identical. Um uh, exertional heat stroke and exertional rhabdo obviously occur in the military, but they also occur in um, uh, intercollegiate athletics, as we know, or competitions such as the Marine Corps Marathon. However, um, being a military provider or a military team physician, we do have a couple of challenges that are unique. Um, when you're making a decision on whether or not to return a, uh, a warfighter back to duty, we have the challenge if we are dealing with someone going overseas we're talking about a mission where this individual is on a team and uh, it's a very important decision. I believe it's a higher bar when you make a return to play or return to duty decision because it's absolutely got to be that that person is ready to go. There's no one else to fill in for that individual, especially if they're on a small team. So we have to be very accurate um, when we make that decision that that athlete's good to go Uh, because if he goes down, it compromises the whole team. So uh, I think that's one of the big challenges in the military. The other is, um, you know, the military uh, is essentially an occupation. Um, so when we make uh, decisions with regards to whether it's heat stroke or exertional rhabdomyolysis, um, oftentimes I'm making a uh, you know decision that may affect livelihood, not only the mission, but whether or not they can stay in the military. So they're, sometimes they're tough decisions, which is why I really have an interest in this um, and labor over these decisions because they have a lot of importance whether it's the mission or or their future occupation.
0: And many of our listeners do work in military settings either full-time in different countries or as, as part of their clinical jobs. What are some of the common conditions you're speaking about when you're going to make a return-to-play decision, someone like go overseas. Is that like ACL injuries and uh, shoulder dislocation? or
1: Yeah, I think some of the most common things that a primary care sports medicine physician is dealing with in the military is going to be return-to-duty decisions with regards to overuse injuries. So common things that we would deal with would be exertional leg pain. We wrestle with that all the time as almost everybody in the military runs. So things like stress fractures, shin splints, chronic exertional compartment syndrome. Uh, We deal with overload injuries, uh, low back pain uh, would be the headliner in one of the most common conditions we see. Um, And then we probably share the burden um, with our orthopedic colleagues on some of the more common traumatic injuries, whether it be, um, like you mentioned, a dislocated shoulder, a new anterior cruciate ligament injury, or perhaps the most common traumatic injury we see that I know the sports medicine community sees would be an ankle sprain
0: let's benefit from your experience on leg pain particularly compartment syndrome because we haven't had a focused discussion on that on these podcasts mm. and it is a tough one so what are the principles when you're teaching a fellow or a physiotherapy trainee about assessment of the runner with calf pain Wow. I
1: tell you that's a, that's a tough one well you mentioned calf pain and chronic exertional compartment syndrome you know uh in my experience uh most of what we see is going to be uh, the anterior compartment and lateral compartment uh then followed by the uh the deep posterior compartment uh if i had a nickel for every calf pain that i've seen and tried to work up for popliteal artery entrapment syndrome or a sural nerve entrapment my god i'd be a wealthy man there extremely uh challenging problems just calf pain but the anterior leg pain um you know with that anterior you're thinking about an anterior shin splint versus a chronic exertional compartment syndrome we see a fair amount of it we see a fair amount of uh, chronic exertional compartment syndrome and um we are frequently called upon by our orthopedic colleagues um to do the testing so we will run most of these cases to ground we will make a, a diagnosis with um with a striker um and uh you know, and pursue it with with striker compartmental testing because it's an important um, decision to make the right diagnosis because it's obviously going to affect prognosis and uh, the future of that soldier.
0: So you've got the skills to put in the striker catheter and make the measurements, but my world was really messed up on that because I thought it was sorted, and then there were a bunch of papers suggesting that the measurements are quite controversial and variable. So how do you deal with the measurement standards?
1: Yeah, well, we we don't use catheter, so we'll use the needle, and I think the most important thing, Krim, when we're doing the testing is you are a clinician, you know, and you're going to uh, watch that patient run. You're going to pay attention to those symptoms. You're going to have not only the value of the uh, the compartmental pressure measurement, but I'm going to have an opportunity to watch that patient run. Did it take them 40 minutes to develop that pain, or did it come predictably at 10 minutes, and when I examine that leg, it's rock hard. They're demonstrating a foot drop, so... Listening to the patient, examining the leg, watching the symptoms in in conjunction with the uh, the pressure measurement, I think I can make a pretty good diagnosis. Um, and oftentimes we're using this testing in conjunction with I may have had a uh, you know plain films or a bone scan or a limited MRI to rule out uh, shin splints or stress fracture if this becomes a complex case but but my judgment really comes into play.
0: And tell me about the numbers, um, the measurement numbers.
1: Well, you know, we use the Peterwitz criteria in terms of uh, high resting baselines that are generally going to be over 20. Uh, you're then going to run them. So we, we do a series of three. We'll get baseline pressure measurements. Um, some of my colleagues will do all three or four compartments, baseline, both legs, run the patient till they're symptomatic, take them off the treadmill and get those pressure measurements immediately. Um, and then we wait uh, five to 10 minutes or you know, uh, depending until the patient is asymptomatic and then retest. Now, um, if the baseline is high, PETAWICS is generally over 15 to 20 baseline is high, and with exertion, if it goes over 30, that's considered high. In my experience, uh, most of the patients who are truly symptomatic um, and demonstrate that rock hard I mean, they are they're shooting at pressures of 60 and higher in those compartments.
0: Let's say it is one of those very high ones does that mean straight to surgery or might you trial other conservative management if that hasn't been done properly
1: oh yeah karim we are um, always go to surgery late and onset what we're doing right now karim is uh, we're trying gait retraining uh first and foremost so if we've made the diagnosis we'll try um education um with a uh, pose technique which is kind of of course more of a barefoot technique um, first, and we'll get them in physical therapy, and that may take, you know, six to eight weeks of gait retraining to see if we can make a difference with that. So our first avenue is gait retraining. The second thing we're going to do is um, we are we are using in our clinic right now. We're using botulinum toxin. Uh, there are several articles out there right now. I don't know if there's been one in British Journal of Sports Medicine yet, um, but we we're employing Botox, um, and we'll target the affected compartments. Uh, we are generally using for the larger compartments 100 units um, of botulinum toxin. Um, smaller compartments we may use 50. You know, like the lateral compartment. But we'll use Botox, and we've anecdotally um, had um, some pretty good success uh, with botulinum toxin um, at this point. It's something that we are in the process of putting an IRB protocol that we can study it, um, and we hope to contribute to the literature in the future on our experience with Botox um i can tell you in my experience we have had with some of our smaller soldiers uh female soldiers that we've used botox we've had one or two cases where they've developed a foot drop as a result of the botulinum toxin but again botox is nice in that it's transient and it and it generally goes away so uh gait retraining uh botulinum toxin uh probably like others we will use um you know art therapy myofascial release techniques Uh, dry-needling, anything, and if they fail, then uh, we're recommending that they see the surgeon uh, to consider a fasciotomy.
0: Before we drill into the which operation question, Fran, just remind me who Pose was, please.
1: Yeah, Pose, um, I believe, is a Russian physical therapist, a Russian athletic trainer, and here in the United States, um, his technique, the Pose technique, became quite popular in in the running community. Um, and some of the military physical therapists have picked up on this, uh, not only to treat um, exertional compartment syndrome to avoid surgical interventions, but uh, we're using it for a lot of lower extremity problems, um, whether it's patellofemoral pain, recurrent shin splints, kids having trouble in basic training with running. Uh, they're being taught to use the, uh, the post-running technique, which, again, is kind of a modified barefoot technique.
0: And you are reminded me of Andy Franklin Miller's podcast with over 10,000 listens where he discussed running retraining and it does seem to be a big um, trend over the last few years compared to an absence of that uh, for a while and the measurements are there and the biomechanical changes and things so there is a biological rationale for sure. Fran, quick one on the Botox, if a listener's thinking of doing that, what are the practical tips in one spot, um, how do you do it let's say for the lateral compartment?
1: Yeah, there are several publications out there with regards to um, the utilization of botulinum toxin for chronic exertional compartment syndrome. So any of the listeners that are going to try it, I would recommend that they go to PubMed. You can find the articles. Um, some authors uh, recommend actually under ultrasound guidance finding each muscle, say, in the anterior compartment and delivering um, a very specific dose of botulinum toxin. In our experience, what we are doing is we are, de- we are identifying, say, the most common compartment, which is the anterior compartment. We are then identifying um, you know, the, uh, the lateral tibial border, identifying the compartment. Uh, we're using 100 units for the anterior compartment, and we divide it, 50 units, 50 units, into two separate injections. Uh, it'll be 50 units per um, 0.5 cc's of uh, normal saline, So in two different locations, and we just go right into the anterior tib compartment, deliver the medication, um, and go from there. Botox, uh, we've had a fair fair amount of experience now with with a number of conditions. I I think uh, we follow the rule of threes with Botox, generally a little uncomfortable for three days. Uh, Most of the time, you get your max benefit in about three weeks, um, and it lasts for about three months. So that's kind of the rule of threes with Botox in our experience, some people with um, chronic exertional compartment syndrome actually have relief uh, well beyond that. But we find it, a, you know, KERMA really a good first go for documented chronic exertional compartment syndrome as opposed to sending them for fasciotomy.
0: You mentioned that only 50% of soldiers who undergo surgery for chronic compartment syndrome return to full service. And that's consistent with literature on these operations. One issue is the actual type of operation and the other uh, potentially regrowth of the fascia. So can you expand on that, please?
1: Well, I can try CRIM. Again, um, I'm not a surgeon, uh, but I refer patients for these. A fasciotomy, of course, is cutting the fascia where a fasciectomy is gonna be excising uh, fascia. Um, I've learned over the years um, and listening to a lot of conferences and, and uh, different experts, this is highly dependent on the surgeon and the surgeon's skill, because this surgery is not done without complications. Uh, there can be um, uh, problems with with healing, uh, with these fasciotomies, so it's important that that surgeon know exactly where they're going and how they deal with the, uh, the soft tissues, in particular the vessels. Um, now, why is it that uh, less than half will return to duty. Uh, Again, returning to duty is a high bar, number one. I think that uh, there's gotta be careful attention that you got the right diagnosis. Um, This has to be confirmed. Uh, Obviously, uh, good surgical outcomes are depending on good surgical indications and that you choose the right patient. Many times these may be complicated by something like a popliteal artery entrapment syndrome or a soleus sling syndrome. You know, or something, other, something else that's comorbid. So choosing the right patient is critical.
0: So let's just finish with orthotics. What's your take on that? What's changed in your thinking about orthoses in the last 10 years?
1: I guess in, in the last 10 years, my changing in orthoses um, has shifted more and more to um, over-the-counter orthoses. And I've become much more accommodative in my use of orthoses, not rigid, but very accommodative orthoses. And uh, at least that's been our experience um, off the shelf uh, seems to do uh, the trick. The other thing uh, I can say, Karim, in my experience, the last ten, and I'll go twenty, is that we are going more. If we are going to something that's custom, we're using computer automation production of our of our orthoses in um, in the military, at least in my facility, at this point, as opposed to the old days where these were uh, slipper casted. So, over the counter, off the shelf, accommodative. Um, and then if we if we default, we go to a computer-driven uh, orthotic.
0: And what do you mean by accommodative?
1: Um, something that's not rigid, something, again, that's going to work with the patient uh, as opposed. Much more forgiving, much more shock-absorbing. That tends to be more of uh, uh, my, my intent at my level at this point before I pass them on to a podiatrist.
0: What about the assessment if it working on it? Bill Vincenzino made the point that you use the patient's immediate feedback versus what might have been a biomechanical alignment uh, plan in the old days. What's your take?
1: Um, I agree. I think that um, the patient feedback is going to be absolutely critical in terms of next steps. And make, as you and I both know, orthotics are are an art, an absolute art. And uh and, using not the biomechanics but using the patient feedback I think is going to be critical to any success. can't tell you how many patients I've seen who just have, you know, bring in a whole box of orthotics that they've spent money on that have meant nothing to them. So I think listening to the patient and and judging their response is uh, first and foremost uh, going to be what's going to be driving the success of that orthotic with the patient.
0: Do you add little things like posts and heels um, to these accommodated ones yourself or do you have a team with you where you work?
1: We have a team, actually, right in my hallway where I see patients, Karim, uh, right at the end, and we're very fortunate. We're kind of in a uh, multidisciplinary clinic with orthopedic, podiatry, physical therapy, but at the end of where I see patients is the orthotic tech right there. So he's right there, and it's very easy for me to go and discuss the uh, the nature of the patient's problem, whether they may need a first ray extension, um, if they're going to need a you know, Morton's pad or something like that, and I, I will have him work with me and the patient to make the adjustment. Uh, I'm certainly not an expert and I know but I know enough <laughs> to go to an expert to help me and you know, make those decisions.
0: Fran, the very last one I promise, and it's the dreaded black line stress fracture on the anterior tibial cortex. Are you referring to those folks for surgery or are you going with a conservative management for this very very difficult stress fracture in military and running populations?
1: Uh, well, that's an easy one for me, uh, Karim, because if I have a dreaded black line and I've identified this high-risk stress fracture, I am absolutely positively sharing that decision uh, with an orthopedic colleague. Now, the orthopedic colleagues may disagree on what they're going to do if we're going to be going with conservative therapy or we're going to go with surgical intervention, but uh, my approach is to share those and that decision um with my orthopedic colleague, and of course, it's going to be individualized based upon the nature of that military um, patient. Uh, you know, their their uh, occupational loads, their operational needs, their timing. Is this someone who sits at a desk, or is this someone who's kicking down doors? And then the orthopedic surgeon as part of our team, will make the decision. now, we're going to move with the surgical intervention or we're going to go with a the conservative therapy. but i'm I'm going to be sharing that decision, Krim. I'm not going to make that decision.
0: And what's the prevalence of the outcome in the running, kicking down the door active athlete? If
1: you have someone who's going to be more operationally oriented, uh, who's going to have a need to move forward, there's going to be a greater tendency towards a surgical intervention, which is going to be a rod.
0: Thanks so much, Fran. Fantastic set of tips there. I know they're going to be very popular with our listeners and our podiatry community as well as um, physios, doctors, sports rehabilitators and trainers and sports therapists. So thank you so much for your time on that today. Oh, you're welcome. That was Francis O'Connor, who is a keynote speaker at the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine Annual Meeting, which is being held in San Diego, May 8 to 13, 2017.